If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. So welcome to the podcast, Cindy. I would love to start by understanding who were you before you decided you were going to become a mum? Hi, it's great to be here. <laughs> um, I am a primary school teacher. Ah. Um, and prior to being a primary school teacher, I was a nanny, a live-in nanny. Oh, you um, love kids then. So, and yeah, even I think I always knew I was going to be a mum. Um, and I spent a lot of time, I guess, working with kids. Um, I worked at summer camps before I nannied. So I think it was always there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm a teacher now. And so what made you decide that you were going to become a solo mum by choice? Well, like I said, I always, I guess I always knew that I wanted to have children. Um, I think like a lot of us, I had this perfect plan in my head. I'd be like 25, married, mm-hmm. um, you know, have a bunch of kids and that's how life would go. Um, but I spent most of my 20s um, moving around, traveling. I nannied in the U.S., Um, I lived in Sydney, Melbourne, kind of all over the place, um, working for different families. And I guess I didn't really place like a lot of importance on having a relationship at that point in my life. I was more interested in traveling, working, kind of hanging out with my friends. So I got into a relationship eventually um, and that was a relationship that I thought would end in marriage and kids and, you know, for a few reasons it didn't. Um, And then so I guess I was at a point then where um, I guess I was free in a sense um, Mm -hmm. to do whatever I wanted with my life. Um, And so I, at that point, I actually froze eggs. I think I was around 33. Okay. And I had this big plan that I was going to move to Texas in the US. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my closest friends lives there and I'd spent the year before COVID going back and forth in the school holidays um, to visit. And I had um, got my Texas teacher's license. Like I'd been um, in the Christmas before COVID, I'd been like looking at apartments and I was like all planned um, 
in 2020 to quit my job here, move to the US, teach for a few years, maybe find like a husband and stay there. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also had like sort of a plan there that if after two years, like that didn't work, I would come home, use those frozen eggs and have a baby by myself. So I guess like that plan was within a bigger plan. Um, And then we know COVID hit. I was going to say, it sounds like a great plan, but (laughs) 2020. And who would have thought that we would have a crazy pandemic? Um, And I guess I actually got lucky because um, my plan was to quit my job in the April um, to give a terms notice and leave in the July. Um, And then in March, we got locked down. So um, I was very lucky that I didn't put that out there. Oh, yeah, and have no job. (laughs) Have no job. Um, And then when COVID hit, I just thought, well, now's the time. So um, COVID lockdown started in the March. Um, I don't really know what happened in Melbourne with IVF. I know, like, it probably wasn't allowed to happen at some point. Um, But in the... um, in the July, I saw my fertility specialist, and I guess I'll backtrack a bit in that my fertility specialist, I have a very long relationship with him in the sense that um, I have endometriosis, which he diagnosed in 2014. Um, and so he has been um, my gynecologist since then um, and had done uh, maybe three endometriosis surgeries on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had my third one in actually in the week before lockdown in the March. Um, and then I had a new Marina put in and then I, in the July I went back to him and said, like, I want to do this. Let's get moving. Yeah. So. Take the Marina out. Thanks. Guys. Yeah. So I, yeah. So I had the Marina taken out. Um, I had like all the blood tests and the, um, you know, those little genetic tests, blood tests done. Um, and then. Yeah, then we went forward and um, started with IVF um, in September of 2020. And were you looking to use your frozen eggs straight away or did you do a fresh cycle? So I spoke to them about that because that was a question my doctor asked and he said, you know, do you want to use the frozen ones? And when we actually looked at the financials of it um, and I was medically allowed to do IVF and get um, the Medicare rebate because of my extensive history with endometriosis. So I guess that was um, one of the benefits of my fertility specialist being my gynecologist. He knew all my history um, and he was happy for me to go straight to IVF. Um, And we did talk about using the frozen eggs. But when I looked at the finances, when you use frozen eggs, there is no Medicare rebate because there is no egg retrieval, because all it is is they thaw the eggs and they inseminate them. So the cost of that was going to be about four or $5,000 and there was no rebate on it. Yeah. So what I ended up doing is I did a fresh cycle um, and then they said to me, um, if you, depending on how many eggs you get, we can also thaw and add them in and it was only going to be an extra $300. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So one oh, of the so good to know that. Yeah. So one of the that's one of the things when I'm talking to people on Facebook and things like that, and people say, "Oh, I've got frozen eggs." I always say, 
do a fresh cycle if you're eligible for Medicare because really it's maybe $1,000 more. So when I did my egg freezing Mm pre-COVID, I actually got something like ridiculous, like 38 eggs. Um, And so there were lots of jokes then about, um, you know, I was very open at work um, with the women at work um, and I, you know, I, I work in a school, so there's lots of women in their late 20s and early 30s and so it was a really good conversation. Um, but, there were, you know, there were lots of jokes like, oh, you know, you got this many eggs. I think there were 34 and 28 were mature. So they froze 28 eggs and, you know, there were all the jokes about like having a soccer team and being able to have all these kids and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at that point when you're freezing eggs, you're sort of, freezing them to have this sort of like little nest guarantee. Like, you know, I'm going to go back. This is my, my nest egg. If I don't meet someone or whatever, I'm going to have these eggs and I'll be able to have a baby. And I guess that was the biggest, um, almost blind side for me because, you know, as you'll hear, as we talk, um, my egg quality was terrible. Um, and so those 28 eggs were actually worthless. I spent $10,000, um, my grandfather died and gave us $10,000 each. And that's what I spent mine on, um, freezing those eggs. And, um, actually like they were worthless because you don't know the quality of your eggs until you try and inseminate them. Yeah. Um, and I guess, so that's what happened in my first round. My doctor didn't expect there to be any issues. Um, my, you know, stims and everything was really straightforward. They retrieved 18 eggs. Um, nine of them mature, were mature and only one fertilized. So um, that was a really big shock. Yeah. Um, we'd also decided to thaw six eggs um, as well. And I, you know, I'm quite scientific and I wanted to see like if the younger eggs were better, um, if the, you know, if the fresh eggs were better, you know, whatever. Um, and they actually thawed six because apparently I think they th- freeze them in lots of three or maybe right. lots of two. So you had to, thaw them out like that um so and of those six um two of those fertilized so I actually had a better fertilization rate with my frozen eggs than I did with my fresh eggs yeah um three so I ended up with three fertilized um one of them made to day five um and was transferred um I got some really faint um positive tests but I ended up having a chemical my HCG was three on test day um and sort of that was the end of that so that cycle was really emotional because I remember when they called me to say like only three fertilized I was just like distraught I didn't know how I'd gone from having like so many eggs um to like you know such a small kind of chance there so um but I just, I guess like the kind of person I am, I'm like, oh, well, like I don't have any control over that. Um, Forge ahead. So we made plans um, for another round. So the first round was in September. Um, I went, I had a month like to rest and reset my body, reset my mind, and then went again in November. Mm -hmm. Um, In November, they collected 14 eggs, 10 of which were mature and three which fertilized. So a bit better there. Um, and we also thawed 10 frozen eggs, um, Mm -hmm. and eight survived the thaw and four fertilized. So, um, there were seven, um, there were seven embryos sort of early on. And then I ended up with one at the end, which was transferred, um, 
and was negative. So I never actually got really good quality embryos. So I always sort of got these embryos that were like before the, you know, before the day five blastocyst stage, like early blasts or, or um, sort of around that. So did they talk about transferring earlier than the five days? No, there was never any sort of, there was never any conversation about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that one was completely negative. Um, so I had Christmas um, and then came back again and um, was ready in the February to go again. Um, and then I, of course, as happens in fertility treatment, my body went whack and decided that um, I had like a 50-day long cycle, which I never had before. And I hear um, women talking about this all the time. They're like waiting for their period to come yeah. and it just doesn't come. And then I took like two weeks of progesterone pills, still didn't come. Um, and I remember, and my fertility specialist um, is so great. I remember I emailed him and was like, look, I still don't have my period. And he was like, come in tomorrow. And then like I woke up and I had my period and I was like, of course. like He thanks me. Thank you. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, and he was so great. He would like reply to my emails at night and, you know, he was, he was really, um, really fantastic. Um, so I did that cycle. Um, ended up being in the March. Mm-hmm. Um, I got 20 eggs, three fertilized. Um, and that round I was the sickest and in the most pain that I'd been. So, um, my very first sort of egg collection, my egg freezing, I spent three days at home and then went back to work for my second. It was four for my third. It was five. And then my, my one in March, um, it took me a week to be able to get out of bed and be out of pain. Um, and I was at that point when I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and that, that round actually, I ended up at the hospital, um, and I was in so much pain that my doctor said, if you get any embryos, we're not going to transfer them. We'll have to freeze them. Um, and I was distraught about that because I knew that I'd never had anything, um, of freezable quality. Mm. So he changed his mind and let me um, and sort of said, like, we'll see, you know, how you go. And I didn't end up with anything to transfer. So um, there was no decision to be made, nothing to transfer, nothing to freeze. So at this point I'm four rounds of IVF um, in. I think at that point I had um, 86. So I had my own eggs over four cycles, 86 eggs collected um, and only ever two embryos make it to transfer. That is pretty tough. So I guess now one of the things I'm quite passionate about is when people talk about egg freezing, I ask like, why are you wanting to freeze your eggs? Because if you're wanting to freeze your eggs to like have a baby by yourself in two years, like what's the point? Like. Do it now. Do it now. You're not going to know what your egg quality is like until they try and fertilize it and and grow those embryos in the lab. Because I thought I was going to have a soccer team with my, you know, 28 frozen eggs um, and nothing. I think I've heard a lot more doctors now saying, you know, if you are doing this to become a solo mum, to just, if not ready, to at least freeze embryos rather than freezing eggs. So that's a lot more 
more, nothing's a guarantee, but it's more of a guarantee than just X because you don't know what the quality is like. Yeah, I think the struggle with that is, though, is that depending on the state and depending on the clinic, a lot of clinics won't let you bank embryos without transferring because you're taking up one of their donor slots. Um, So that's, I mean, and I guess IVF is a business in that sense. Um, So which which is tough, but I guess at the same time that protects those women that do want to try and get pregnant now to have access to that donor sperm because we know how short supply it is. Mm, very true. So devastating, 86 and nothing. How were you mentally through that? Um, I think I had my ups and downs, um, but I think I just knew there was nothing I could do to control it. Like I'm not, um, you know, I know there's a lot of women who are like, okay, I'm going to do acupuncture and I'm going to take all these supplements and I'm going to only eat organic, you know, pasture raised, whatever. Like <laughs> that's not me. I'm like sitting here and, you know, if it was any other night, I'd be consuming half a block of chocolate while I watch TV. Yeah. Um, and I just couldn't see myself going sort of down that path of, um, you know, well, what if I do this? And what if I do this? And what if I do this? And I just was at a point where I thought like, I I don't have that control. Um, And I had had a couple of conversations. It was interesting early on when I did my first round, I had conversations with people who said like, well, how many rounds are you going to do? At what point do you give up? And I could never really answer that Mm. um, because I guess while you're in it, you're just thinking, well, I just want a baby and I'll do whatever I have to do to get there. And 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 you try and stay positive. That's going to work this time. So I don't need to think about that as well. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and in my head, I sort of thought, well, I can probably afford to do three rounds. Um, But I never spoke that to anybody. I never said, well, I'm three rounds and done because I don't like want to be a person who like goes back on my word, you know, Mm -hmm. even to myself. So um, I never really said that, but I remember lying in bed after that third or the fourth um, round of IVF, um, and it was Easter. So I purposely um, done that round in in the March because I knew that my retrieval and recovery would fall in the school holidays. So it actually it worked out really well. Um, but I spent a week in bed in so much pain just thinking, like, I cannot put my body through this again. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that brings us to um, April 2021. So, two and a half years ago. It feels like just yesterday in some ways. Um, And I guess this is where my journey kind of took a different path. So um, back in maybe like when I was really even starting IVF, um, a friend of mine who I've been friends with for a very long time, um, Lauren, she Um, has three beautiful children with her husband um, and her second child was conceived via IVF. And then her third child was a miracle natural, um, naturally conceived baby. So um, after they had their second child, they still had two embryos. um, And she had posted on her personal Facebook page about being interested in donating um, and not really like, does anyone want them or whatever, but just sort of putting it out there that they were interested in donating um, and that's what they were doing. And so I saw that and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And then um, 
at some point along the line, I had a conversation with her and I told her I was doing IVF and that thing. And she became a really great support to me. And then we came to a place where um, they offered their two embryos to me. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So, and that was, you know, um, a really, you know, a really big deal for them and a really big deal for me. And I guess a big deal for me to think that like somebody who knows me would then trust me um you know with those embryos um so that was um and that was actually a very easy process because they had frozen the embryos with city fertility in melbourne when they lived in melbourne so even though they now live in sydney the embryos were here in the um bandura um city fertility office yeah. so they were just up the road um and so we went through a process of counselling. Um, so even though I'd done all the counselling myself and they had done all the counselling themselves, they then basically when there's a donor um, embryo involved, the counselling has to be redone. Um, so there's different considerations, aren't there? So just using yeah, completely, terms. completely different considerations. Mm. Um, and so they had a counselling session. I had a counselling session and then we had a counselling session together. Um, and the counselling session together was hilarious because um, it was more just like us trying not to make inappropriate jokes and like trying not <laughs> to make the counsellor feel awkward basically. So um, we did all that. We signed all the paperwork. Um, the embryos were couriered across town from the northern suburbs into the St Kilda um, branch and... They were mine. Wow. Like the best present. <laughs> so, um, and so that basically happened um, between April and July. And then I um, went for my first frozen embryo transfer in July, mm -hmm. um, which was my first experience of that. I'd never been at a point with my own eggs and embryos to have a frozen transfer. So um, that was all new to me. Um, we transferred one. It didn't work. Hmm. So then I decided we're going to go back to back. So we just went again um, in in the August. Um, and so there was one, one embryo left um, and we transferred it and I was pregnant. Wow. So I had um, positive, very faint positive tests um, and I – went for my blood test and I expected them like my very first round when I had the chemical, I expected them to call and say, you know, your HCG is, I don't know, three or whatever. Um, it's negative. And they called and I don't um, recall what my numbers were, but they called and said, well, you know, you're pregnant, but the numbers are very low. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started this. And so this is in August. Um, and I started this process, this, and this is probably one of the hardest times in my journey. I started this process of having to have a blood test every second or third day mm. or, until October. So my HCG rose um, very slowly, um, not at the rate they wanted, but every time the test came back, it was higher. So there was still hope. There was still hope. Um, and then I went for scans and then they were like, oh, well, we can see something little, come back next week. So there was this like hope, but also this like, 
like, you know, that thing in the back of your mind that's like, maybe this isn't going to turn out, you know. Um, And I ended up down the Google rabbit hole. Oh, dear. Um, And not in a bad way, but basically I read everything I could about like low, like, you know, um, low raising HCG and like if it could be viable and what it meant and all that sort of thing. Um, And then basically we kept doing these blood tests, had a couple of scans. I ended up going to like the specialist. I went to two different specialists to have scans. Um, and then at a at about seven and a half, eight weeks, they said it's not viable. Um, and my fertility specialist again was fantastic. I went and had that final scan um, with the specialist at like 8.30 in the morning. Um, it was the it was like I don't know there was some sort of long weekend um and I emailed him the report as soon as I got out I was like in my car it was pouring rain I'm in the city my nose is I'm bawling it's not everywhere I have no tissues in my car because like I didn't you know I like I knew it was gonna be bad but I didn't actually like physically plan to be bawling in my car in the city um, and I emailed him the um, report and within five minutes he'd called me and was like, um, he said, I'm getting my receptionist to send you the forms to go and get a COVID test. We'll book you in for a DNC tomorrow. So um, there was no, you know, there was no waiting. There was no like drawn out anything. Um, he looked after me so well. And then the next, so I basically went from there, went to pathology, got a, got a COVID test because we're still in COVID test times. Um, And then, um, yeah, went home and prepared to go to the hospital the next day. So, um, yeah. And like, that was, I guess, you know, very, um, you know, that was a challenging time in my journey, but again, I'm very much a realist. And so, if it wasn't going to happen, then it wasn't going to happen. Um, and then um, one of the things that they can do when this happens is they can actually send away um, for testing. Um, so they can actually send away for genetic testing. They send the embryo um, and, you know, what they take out. And they found out that um, the embryo or the baby had four genetic mutations that weren't compatible um, with mm-hmm. life. So there was a reason there was a reason that it wasn't progressing like a normal pregnancy would. So, um, and again, you know, um, I'm not really a everything happens for a reason person, um, but that that was good for me because that said to me, hey, you can get pregnant and it wasn't your body that stuffed up. Like it wasn't your body. There was something wrong with this embryo um, and it wasn't going to work. Yeah. So that actually There's nothing gave- you could have done. Yes, and that gave me hope in that, um, well, cool, you know, like this one wasn't meant to be. So, um, yeah, so that happened. Um, and Did that affect Lauren and her partner quite a bit as well then? Because obviously um, they wanted to give you this gift. Yeah, look, I mean, we never kind of, um, you know, I think they were just very supportive of me, um, you know, like, when that happened, they sent flowers and gifts and, you know, they were just really supportive of me because they, um, you know, they knew I wanted to have a baby 
and they had a way of helping me potentially get there. Um, so they were, you know, really, really supportive of me and continued to be really supportive of me, even in the next part of my journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I think for them, um, and I know that Lauren um, has had lots of like, you know, experience with um, miscarriage in her um, journey to get pregnant and have her children. So I think she was really compassionate and, you know, um, but of course I'm sure that she in particular was probably quite sad that um, they couldn't, you know, give me that. Make your little dream come true. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so we're in, you know, we're in November now um, of 2021. So nearly a year and a half since I started and more than that since I decided that this is what I was going to do and um, I'd actually already and I guess this is like the planner in me while I was still pregnant I was already thinking well, what's my next step like I don't want to get to the end of this and then go okay now what do I do so I'd already started looking um on a couple of Facebook pages with egg and embryo donors and just sort of just like checking it out um and I came across um someone who posted anonymously Mm -hmm. saying that they had embryos um they were looking for um a couple in their home state who wanted to have you know more than one child um and I um, messaged them or I left a comment and they messaged me and I was basically like, look, I am not what you're looking for. (laughs) Like I'm a single woman. I live in a different state um, and, you know, but we started talking and um, we, you know, really clicked. Um, We got along really well, very similar um, ways of thinking. And um, she really shared with me um, her story in terms of why she wanted to donate, mm-hmm. um, but also what was really important to her was that she would have a say in who she donated to. And so they tried to go through the clinic to donate through the clinic, but they found that to um you know, there were too many restrictions in terms of um, like if they could find out who or if they could have contact or those sorts of things. So um, that's really what they wanted and that's what led them to go down the path of going to a Facebook group to find um, someone in a known donor situation. Yeah. Um, so we had actually started talking while I was still pregnant and I explained that to her and I sort of like explained what was happening and um, and then we came to a point where, um, you know, between us, we decided that they were going to donate their five embryos to me. Wow. So that happened in, um, the November. Mm -hmm. We had those conversations. We, um, you know, FaceTimed and chatted a lot. Um, her and her husband have two beautiful children as well. Um, so they, you know, talked to them about it um, in, you know, ways that they would understand. Um, and then we proceeded with um, organising that part, the transfer of the embryos. 
Um, they obviously wanted someone in the same state to start with. Was that something that was pretty easy to overcome? Yeah, look, um, I think they wanted someone in the same state because they wanted to be able to have a relationship. Yeah. Um, but the more, um, you know, the more we sort of talked about it, um, I think what's interesting in this like known donor situation, but you don't really, it's not known donor like my friends known mm. donor. It's it's known donor in that you know who the people are, but you don't have any other connection. And I think, um, I think with actually being in separate states, it means that the contact we do have is organized nobody can show up on someone else's doorstep and there's also not that like expectation of like how often we're going to see each other because that sort of stuff so I think the more we talked about it um you know it 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 all worked out and I think that um yeah I think that I think that that was maybe um I'm assuming here maybe it was like obviously it was less of a priority than actually knowing the person, getting along with the person and that sort of thing. What you think you want when you go into something versus when you've had the conversation to meet the right person, what ends up being important. So Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, and so that actually, that was the easy part. The deciding was the easy part. The hard part was actually um, transferring the embryos from interstate and not the interstate component but okay. between clinics. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, basically the clinic in that state was affiliated with a different clinic in, in Victoria, um, not City Fertility, who I was with. Um, and so there was a lot of, like, crossed um, communication, like, um, you know, oh, no, you, you can't transfer the embryos there. And so we actually had to really, like, stand our ground and um and say well and not me but them had to say well hey they're our embryos and actually we can do whatever we like with them um you can't say where we can transfer them to um with your relationship with your specialist you just want to go back there obviously so well and yeah and so that was because at first they were like oh no like your recipient has to come here and then they were like oh oh well we'll transfer them but we'll only transfer them to like our sister clinic so which would mean I'd have to change specialists here and so it just became, and so really, I mean, I'm, I can be, I mean, and anyone who knows me will attest, I can be quite a forceful person in terms of like, if I want no. something, <laughs> no, if I want something, I'll just, you know, I think a lot of us are like this, like, look no. at the we're in. if I want something, I'll do whatever I have to do um, to get it. And, you know, we were never rude or pushy, but we knew what our rights were. And my donor is actually a lawyer, so she she knew what her rights that were. Handy. Um, and between the two of us, basically, like she communicated with her clinic, I communicated with my clinic. Um, and in the end, the thing they didn't tell us was that we needed to sign like paperwork to say the clinics could talk to each other. And once we signed that paperwork, um, the donor coordinators spoke with each other, um, and then we were on a roll. So. It was just a case of some paperwork in the end. But because I couldn't communicate with her clinic and she couldn't communicate with my clinic, it just was very messy. So um, we did all that. And then we had to have more counselling involved in all of this. Um, And so, again, I did counselling by myself. They did counselling and then we did it together. Um, 
And then the most um, interesting part was actually having to apply to VATA to import the embryos from another state into Victoria. Right. Okay. So um, that involved paperwork. Um, and basically what you have to do is you have to show um, that, look, I'm not paying them any money um, and that sort of thing. And so basically the way that worked was there was paperwork that we filled in um, and the councillor wrote a report for VATA, you know, explaining the relationship and and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, then it was basically just waiting. So that um, the councillor was really great. She like, got us in really quickly. You've, you know, you've got waiting, you've got to wait two weeks before between sessions or whatever, but she basically fit us in um, at, you know, the end of December and the start of January for the counselling. We applied to VATA um, maybe around like the 10th or the 11th of January. And then it was just waiting. And at that point we were told that VATA sat, the board at VATA sat once a month um, to do these, um, applications, but like there was no guarantee that they would get to yours at that next meeting. So, um, it was just then, I think there was like a two month, like they said they'd get to it within two months or whatever it was. So, um, it was then just a waiting game. Um, and in we're, we're now in like January, 2022, and I um, had at the end of 2021, I decided I needed a change in work. Um, so I'd taken a year leave without pay from my school and taken a job at another school for a year just to, you know, I'd been at my work for seven years um, and I just needed something fresh. And, um, you know, I'd been doing the same thing sort of day in, day out. And you just need, um, you know, in teaching, um you know, it's really actually good to go somewhere else, see how they do things, um, you know, build up your professional knowledge and things like that. So I took um, a job at another school and on the first day of school, which I remember was January 31st, the end of the day I opened my email and the VADA approval was there in my email. Yeah. So that was a very good uh, first day of school. And I'm assuming you had to go through quite a bit of paperwork in terms of the donation and things. Did the clinic manage all of that for you? Yeah, so that was all managed by the clinic. Um, the paperwork was actually really heavy on the donor's side. So I guess um, and now when I look back at, you know, two fantastic couples who are both so willing to donate to me, um, it's not just a case of, oh, well, our embryos are in the freezer, here you go. Um, they actually had to fill in like the full donor profiles, like any um, mm. clinic donor would fill in because all of that information needs to go on record um, so that, all you know. Medical history and all that. Sort of yeah, stuff. so medical history, all you know, they had to have blood tests and um, things like that. My um, donors in interstate, she had to have, um, a telehealth appointment with my fertility specialist. So my fertility specialist could sign her off as a donor for me. Um, so even that she had to go to her GP to get the referral to see um, my specialist. So all That's that kind quite of a process. Yeah. So, um, and then like the, and, you know, I have the copies of um, their donor profiles because 
you know, I know them anyway um, now. And um, But those documents are like 12 pages long and they ask like, you know, I mean, you've seen the sperm donor ones um, and they ask for, you know, your medical history on both sides of your family, going back to like grandparents and things like that. Um, and so for somebody to not just be willing to obviously like donate their cells, mm. um, but to also take all this time that's needed to have blood tests and do paperwork. And I think that's the side of donation that we don't see yeah. as recipients. Um, so that for me was a big deal knowing like they care that much that they would spend all this extra time, um, doing that stuff. Yeah. It's not just a rash decision of we're not going to use them, just do whatever. It's a quiet process. Yeah. So, yeah. So now we're in, um, 31st of January. Yeah. Yeah. 31st of January. Um, and now I'm in a dilemma because I've just started a new school and I'm leading a team. Um, and yeah, I don't want to be flaky. I want to like show up and do my job and do it well, but I'm also like, well, when am I going to start transferring? Um, and so I, you know, kind of waited and thought, when am I going to do this? And I originally was going to wait until it was like nearly the holidays. And then I just was like, you know what, I'm just going to do it now. So March, um, I did a for another frozen transfer um, and it was negative. But that's okay because there's still four embryos left. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I did um, the first two transfers, I felt like there was more pressure when you go into that second transfer and it's the last embryo. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's the same if it's donor embryos or your own embryos when you've only got one left and you're hanging your hopes and dreams on that one embryo. Um, it feels like a lot, but when this one failed, I was like, ah, there's still four more. Like, and again, being a rational thinker, you know, that not every embryo in a batch of embryos is going to be normal or, or, you know, viable. So you think, cool, that was a bad one. That's one bad one out of the way. Let's keep moving. Um, so I took a break and in the April school holidays, um, I went to visit my mom, um, and my sister and my nieces who live interstate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my sister had just had a little baby boy as well. So I had a new nephew to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to visit them and then my mom and I actually took my nieces on a little holiday for the weekend and we went and met my donors for the first time. Oh, wow. So we went and we just went and had like dinner out. Um, actually her husband was unwell, so he didn't come, but she came with the kids um, it was really nice because we, me and my mom were there with my nieces and the kids were similar ages. So it, it kind of took the pressure off a bit. Um, you know, the kids played, we chatted um, and that was just really lovely. Um, You're looking at these kids going, hopefully I'm going to have one that looks exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. Well, yeah. And that's the, I think that's the weirdest um, and most beautiful part of this known donor situation is that I can look at those kids and go like. To future. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, if this works, my kids would look like this. And, you know, so it was really beautiful to meet them and, um, and spend a little bit of time with them. Um, And then, you know, we said goodbye and said, hopefully next time we see each other, there'll be a baby. Um, And so I came home from that. And then in the May, I went again 
And at this point, my fertility specialist said, how do you feel about transferring to? So Mm -hmm. there were four um, embryos left. I was up, this was my sixth transfer. Um, He knew I was doing it by myself. So he knew that financially, um, you know, in terms of like doing one and then doing one was twice the price of doing two. He said, obviously, like there's a risk. Um, And yeah, is a financial risk of twins (laughs) outweighed. Yeah, I know. I think twins is probably going to cost more than a $4,000 transfer down the road. But, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I sort of like had it in my head, hey, if I have twins, like I'll be done. Like, you know, one pregnancy and I'll be done. Um, In hindsight, I'm glad I did not have twins. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, we did make the decision at that point to transfer two embryos. Um, so interestingly, four of the embryos were frozen earlier than the fifth embryo. So the fifth mm-hmm. embryo obviously was a bit of a slow grower yeah. and um, was frozen later, but that was actually the embryo they transferred first. So they actually, in hindsight, used the worst embryo first, potentially. Mm, um, yeah. So then we went forward um, and went through all the um, process of the frozen transfer um, I guess one thing I got lucky in was that my cycle was still really regular. Um, my hormones worked all correctly, so I didn't need to take any needles or any, tr- I didn't have any triggers or anything. Um, I just, natural. yeah, I just did, um, you know, progesterone support. And, um, by this point I was taking, you know, those extra things like aspirin and, um, steroids and things like that to give me the best chance possible. My doctor was always like, look, there's no actual hard evidence behind this, but it can't hurt to like throw everything we've got at it. So, but I was, I didn't have, you know, and I took some like, you know, tablets, but I never had to take any more triggers or any injections for my frozen transfers, which was great. Um, And then, yeah. So in May they transferred two. um, And then on the Friday morning, it was six days after the transfer. Um, and I peed on the test and the tiniest little line came up and I could not believe it. It was a proper line, not like those other ones. It was a proper line. And then I continued to pee on tests for weeks to come and compare them and continue to have blood tests. Um, thankfully, I did not have to have six weeks of blood tests, um, but my numbers um, doubled or more than doubled. And at that point I was like, oh my God, please don't be twins. Um, <laughs> um, and then at about seven weeks I had a scan and there was one tiny little baby, one just one. Perfect little heartbeat. So, um, but yeah, pregnancy, I guess after all that is stressful, you know, particularly when you've had um, what is probably considered like a missed miscarriage, yeah. um, you know, And I think, you know, for anyone that's had to go through fertility treatment, whether, um, you know, it's just because you're single and you need fertility treatment or whether you um, have infertility, um, it's stressful because you know that there's medical procedures needed to get you pregnant. And so the stress of that, and for me, like every scan, you know, you're worried. Like you're not worried, but you're anxious. You're anxious like, is what something going to be wrong? Is there going to be a heartbeat? Um, and that sort of thing. Yeah. 
But there was. But there was, yeah. and there always was. Um, and then around 22 weeks or so, I started to feel him. Um, and I always, people, you know, when people are like kind of early and pregnant and they're like, well, what does it feel like? And I explain it, it's like a fart bubble. <laughs> Um, and that's what like the first feeling, you know, people are like, oh, it's like butterflies. It was not like butterflies. It was like, is that a fart? No, it's a baby. <laughs> that's what it was like. So um, my early pregnancy was interesting. Um, when I was like seven weeks pregnant, I went on school camp, um, but wasn't allowed to do anything fun because my team obviously knew that I'd done IVF and they knew I was pregnant. So I wasn't allowed to like go on a flying fox or anything fun like that. Um, wasn't even, I wasn't allowed to go canoeing. Um, but, it, but it actually worked in my favor because it was like up in the Yarra Valley and it was like five degrees and raining. And so I actually like got to sit inside, play board games by the fire and, you know, with kids and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so I went on school camp and I pretty much had nausea from day dot the Friday that I tested, um, when I was like, you know, three weeks pregnant, I went to work and I had a camp meeting in my classroom and I had to physically leave the classroom because the smell of 50 lunches, canteen food, um, that early on just made me feel sick. And I pretty much felt sick for most of my pregnancy. So, but that was okay because like, if you feel sick, it's good because you're pregnant. (laughs) Did you have to take any different medication or anything because it was an embryo? Um, no, I don't think so, but I, I guess, um, I have done some reading about like the, um, immune protocol being used with donor embryos because of the, the fact that your body could be like, Hey, foreign, foreign object. Um, but I was already on that immune protocol anyway. So I did take, um, I did take Clexane injections, um, until, quite far in my pregnancy, maybe like 36 weeks or so, mm-hmm. maybe 34 around then. Um, I took aspirin um, and I took, um, and I stayed on progesterone for maybe 26 or 28 weeks. It's so, everything you can to support. Yeah, exactly. And I think that medication almost becomes a bit like a security blanket. Like you're like, the, the medication is what's keeping me pregnant. And so when it comes time to like taper off, there was a bit of anxiety there. Um, but then it's also a bit freeing once you don't have that medication. Yeah, I think I was on progesterone until like 32 or something. Yeah. It's so nice not having suppositories anymore. <laughs> oh, completely. Oh. And like, yeah, three times a day. Yeah, no. Nah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so pregnancy, um, you know, wasn't my best time. I got really bad pelvic girdle pain about 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um and got to the point like where I couldn't, couldn't really stand, couldn't walk. It was painful to roll over. Um, and so I stopped working at mm, about, about 30 weeks. Um, and then, so I stopped working. My plan was to work till the end of term, yeah. um, like the end of the year, which was 34 weeks, but I didn't get there. So I stopped working about five weeks before the end of the term. And then basically was on like self-imposed bed rest because I couldn't, um, like I couldn't walk anywhere. I couldn't like, um, and that I think that was challenging because like I couldn't even go supermarket shopping, um, or I couldn't go to you know. And so I would my uh, my thing that I did was I would like ring up the Westfield and book like those little um, buggies that like the senior citizens drive around. <laughs> in. 
so I'd ring and like book one of those and then like drive that around. Um, there's a Westfield near where I live and it's like one level. So I would drive that around and like go to Kmart and go to the supermarket. And um, it was funny because like the little, the ladies that worked at like the service desk um, and the security guards like came to know me because every week I'd go and do my shopping and they were great. They would like help me with the, my bag and take them to my car and stuff mm. like that. So it was really nice to see um, like how people in the community support, you know, people that need help. And now we have a beautiful little boy, don't we? We do. He is nine months old. I do not know where that time has gone. Um, and he is the most beautiful. And I know everyone says their child is the most beautiful, but he is the most beautiful, happy, smiley, um, easy baby that I have been blessed with. And you've been around a few being a nanny and everything else as well. Oh, yes. I've, I've um been around a few so but yeah he um yeah he's asleep right now which is great because um we're coming out of quite a hard (laughs) a hard period of our life um with illness and stuff um but yeah I um I actually elected to have a cesarean Mm -hmm. um I again plan a bit of a control freak type a and I didn't I didn't want like the surprise of labor. Um, my mom lives interstate, so I wanted her to be able to be here. Um, and I actually, um, from like 36 weeks, I was in so much pain every week I walked into my OB and I was like, I'm done. And he was like, no, you're not. And I was like, okay. And then (laughs) 37 weeks, I was like, I'm done. And he's like, no, you're not. And then 38 weeks. I remember it was a Wednesday and I walked in. I was like, I'm done. And he's like, okay, how's this weekend? Yes, please. Yeah. So, and he, I, I mean, it probably worked for him. He was um, at that point, a lot of the, um, it was January. So a lot of the fertility specialists were on holidays and he was covering for like three or four other fertility specialists. So his appointments were like double booked and he was so busy that he probably thought, cool, I'll take your scheduled Friday cesarean spot back and I'll just do you on a Saturday morning. And so um, that was great. I rang my mom and I was like, you better get here. Um, And on the Saturday morning, we were late to the hospital and we got there. We'd forgot to do the COVID test. So they made us go to this little room and do COVID tests. Um, And then we just like sat in the reception. And so they told us to be there at 8.30 and I wasn't even due to like walk through the door till 9.30. So I'm glad we were late because, you know, would have been boring just sitting there. Um, and it was really, um, you know, it was really like controlled and um, it was like clinical in the sense that you're going into theater and all of that. Um, but everyone was lovely. Um, I was quite like unprepared. Like I literally had my phone and was like, can I play some music? And the anesthetist was like, oh yeah, I've got like a speaker here. Like just, you know, I'll, I'll connect it up and I was like, crap, I better make a playlist. Like <laughs> I like lying on the table making a playlist. Um, and then, you know, me being me, they're cutting me open and I'm like, how many layers have you cut through down there? Um, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, they cut him out and held him up and said, is this the gender you're expecting? And I knew I was having a boy. I was like, yep. And then um, off he went and um, the pediatrician checked him out. My mom cut the cord mm-hmm. um, and then they brought him back over. Um, and I had quite a bad reaction to like whatever the drug is. And I was like really shaky and um, yeah. yeah. And um, the one thing I'd said to them was like, I do not want to vomit. I said, so 
Um, I said, please give me medication so I don't vomit. I said, but don't give me anything that's going to make me vomit. So the drug that they give you to stop the shaking apparently often makes you vomit. So I lay there shaking and then I got to the point where I was like, can you like take the baby off me? And so he actually went and mum cuddled him. So I've got all these really cute photos um, that one of the nurses took my mum's phone and took like a hundred photos in theater. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, so I've got these like beautiful photos of like my mum just like looking at him and he's got his hand on his face. And um, so she got to cuddle him until they stitched me up and everything. And then eventually I said yes to um, a little bit of medication to stop the shaking and I didn't vomit. And then I was able to get him back in recovery um, and yeah, then had a five day um, stay at the private hospital. Um, and then came home and then it all began. Yeah. So coming home, you're obviously quite used to babies from being a nanny. Was it what you thought it was going to be or is it completely different when it's your own? Um, it was completely different. Um, in terms of, I mean, I've looked after newborns before, but the sleep deprivation, um, you know, when you're a nanny, you go home at seven o'clock and you hand them back to their parents and the parents take the night shift. Um, but I had never felt so tired in my entire life. <laughs> um, my mom stayed with me for the first five weeks. Um, and I just, I also have like one of those baby cameras and I had it in my room cause he slept in the bassinet next to me and I would go back and look at the footage and I literally would fall asleep in 10 seconds. Like my head would hit that pillow and I would be snoring. Yeah. Um, like I was that tired Um but everyone who came and visited in those first few weeks was like, you are doing amazing. Like you look like you're doing great. Um, and you know, like I was, I was doing well, um, but I just never realized like how hard those first few weeks would be. And I remember saying to my mom, like bawling at one point, like, when do I get my life back? In about 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> my mom was like, never look, I'm here with you. <laughs> um, and, you know, there were definitely like a few hard days. Um, I had a lot of problems with breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wanted to breastfeed, um, but I found that um, the support in the hospital wasn't, um, it wasn't consistent. That you have a different midwife three times a day that all tell you different things. Yeah. Um, and I found that, you know, I think that was probably the hardest part for me was I knew about babies. I can dress a baby. I can bath a baby. I can put a baby to bed, but I never breastfed a baby. Mm. Um, and so I spent a lot of um, that first kind of few weeks trying to figure out breastfeeding. But by the time it was, it was too late because um, he had a tongue tie. Mm. He tore up my nipples. Um, I was in agony. Um, and so like on, you know, my milk came in on day three, I literally like lay down for a nap and 19 minutes later, I woke up like Pamela Anderson. Um, and from that point, like I started pumping. So I spent the first, um, like the first 10 weeks of his life pumping, um, which was, I know that you did as well. Um, and it's exhausting because you're literally like feeding the baby, putting the baby to sleep. And then when the baby's asleep, like you have to pump. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I had my mom here to help. So she actually did a lot of the bottle feeding so I could pump. Um, but that like pumping, washing bottles, all that, like it adds another layer. Um, and so one of the 
best and probably most important things I did was I ended up getting really, really good um, breastfeeding support. I ended up seeing like five different people through, like, you know, I saw people at the hospital. I saw people at like, you know, the councils have free breastfeeding clinics. I saw um, a paid, like a, you know, an IBCLC. Um, But I just felt like everyone kept saying to me, like, you're doing great. Just keep trying, like, you know, just keep trying. And I was like, do you think I'm not trying? Like, Mm -hmm. I was trying so hard. Um, And then actually another single mum by choice. um, At one point I was like, I'm in so much pain. Um, You know, I had taken like a month's worth of antibiotics for suspected nipple thrush, which apparently I didn't even have. And then someone, another single mom was like, um, oh, maybe you've got something else. Go and see this woman. Um, And the woman was Dr. Amber Hart, who is like a breastfeeding guru. Mm. Um, And she's just opened these beautiful new rooms in Parkville where she basically just does like breastfeeding medicine, um, you know, women's and children's health. And she has started this like breastfeeding day stay where you can go for seven hours and have someone supervise all your feeds. You get a massage, you get lunch, you get like, it's, it's literally like new mum heaven. Um, and the tips she gave me, I went in there. So I booked an appointment. I went in there and I was at like the precipice and I was like, I need to make a decision. I, I'm either going to breastfeed or I'm going to go to formula because I can't, you know, my mom had been gone for five weeks at this point and I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, and, but I didn't want to give him formula, but I was sort of at that point where I had to make a decision. So basically Amber was like my last ditch. I went to her and like, I went from like basically not breastfeeding to breastfeeding without a nipple shield in an hour with her. Um, And then I booked in for the day stay five days later um, and me being me all or nothing. I was like, this is, you know, this is what I'm working towards. It was basically like the point where I would walk away from this appointment and I would have to try and breastfeed for the next five days because I didn't want to come back to the day stay and be like, I failed. We've gone back to a bottle. (laughs) Um, And so (laughs) from and when I was with her, she said, look, it's fine. If you want to give one bottle and, you know, if you want to give a bottle at nighttime to make it easier, you know, do that. Cause I was really struggling with like the night feeds. Mm-hmm. Um, but I literally went completely to breastfeeding and I went back on to the day stay and, and I had breastfed for five days. Um, and, you know, she gave me more tips and pointers about positioning and um, you know, and my big issue was nipple pain. And she basically explained it to me like, the nipple has to be sort of in a certain position in the baby's mouth because if it's like too far to the side or whatever, then the breast tissue drags and that's what causes the pain. And so she was like, so if you're feeling the pain, like on the left, move the baby slightly towards the pain. So the drag on that. And I was like, how are you the sixth person I've seen? And nobody has told me this. Um, But she's, again, she's a guru. So um, we'll put her link in the show notes. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? Like, and I'm not just, you know, I'm not just here sort of talking her up to talk her up. What she has created for like mums and babies um, is amazing. I take Kelly there now. One of the GPs there is his GP because, you know, I've got a GP, but um, I wanted someone who has a real interest 
you know, in babies um, and, you know, they're great. Um, so I, from 10 weeks, I breastfed and that changed my life. Being mm-hmm. able, like before that, I couldn't leave the house. Well, to no, go, you're attached to a pump all day and then yeah. you yeah, and to go anywhere, it would take like two hours to get ready because I'd have to like feed the baby, change the baby, pump, change the baby again. And by the time you get in the car to get somewhere, it's time to it's feed the baby again. again. Mm. So um, being able to breastfeed changed my life because I could, um, you know, I remember one day we were late for a physio appointment and I was like, cool, I fed him for like 15 minutes because he was still a little baby and took a while to feed at this point. Got in the car, got to the physio and then fed him when I got there. Yeah. Um, and I just couldn't believe how much, um, yeah, how much being able to breastfeed successfully changed my life. And so now he's nine months old and he's still completely breastfed. Um, and the only time I pump is to pump milk for daycare. Um, but I also breastfeed at daycare. So he goes to daycare on my work site, which is amazing. Okay. Um, and so, Usually once a day at my lunch break, I'll go over there and feed him if it lines up with like, you know, um, when he's awake. Um, and then he'll often have one bottle a day with his educators. But um, yeah, other than that, the pump lives in the pump bag and goes to work and breastfeeding. Uh, and he's a boob boy. He loves breastfeeding. And um, yeah, we've just had um, a couple of weeks where I was really sick. Um, and then he got really sick um, with hand, foot, and mouth, daycare mm. bugs. Um, and for three days he refused to breastfeed. And I was actually, like, quite distraught about the fact that, um, firstly, that I was, like, attached to the pump again, um, yeah. but also that, like, connection and that, you know, that physical act of breastfeeding and the cuddles and being able to feed him to sleep and all that sort of thing. Um, I was really worried that he, like, that he was done because I would, like, offer him the breast and he would just be like, no, or he would bite me, like, no. Um, And he doesn't have teeth yet, but he would, you know, have a good go. Um, And then I reached out to Amber and I was like, oh, my gosh, what do I do? And she was like, he'll come back. She was like, just give him time. She was like, you know, when you can, like, lie around on the bed with no shirt on, but don't force him, he'll come back. And a couple of days ago, got him up in the morning and offered him and he popped on and that's it. No more bottles since. So And put him mouth that might have hurt maybe when he was trying to do Well, it. yeah. Well, what I didn't realise, I thought I, re- I initially thought it was teething because um, he's at that age and doesn't have teeth yet. So I thought, oh, here we go. Um, and then it wasn't until he came up with a rash and I took him to the doctor and she looked in his mouth and she was like, oh, it's all in his mouth and throat. And I thought, oh, gosh, well, no wonder, you know, mm-hmm. no wonder he didn't want to breastfeed. Um, and thankfully he takes a bottle because he smashed the bottles for those three days. Um, and I was still able to pump and and give him that milk. Um, but yeah, I didn't going into being a solo mom by choice and just a mom, I didn't realize that breastfeeding would have such a big like impact on my life in a, in a positive way. And did you go into it thinking you'd have more than one child? Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I like, in a perfect world, I would have multiple children. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, particularly, I think after a challenging pregnancy, I think, um, you know, I am turning 39 in a few days. Um, and firstly, how would I manage a pregnancy with a, 
a toddler or like a one-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and also then you've got all the implications afterwards. Like, can you have a better life financially with one child? Can you travel with them? Can you give them, you know, um, you know, that money was very tight. My mom was a single mom from very early on, not by choice, by circumstance, um, you know, from kind of when I was three or four and we missed out on a lot of things growing up and she worked as hard as she could, but it was the nineties and, you know, low pay jobs and things like that. And, you know, we, I don't ever feel like we kind of missed out, but, you know, we never went to Disneyland or, you know, and I love to travel and I love to, you know, do things like that. So, um, and I just feel a bit old, you know, like, (laughs) Do I really, you know, do I really want to do another pregnancy as a 40-year-old? You know, do, um, and then there's like the question, can you, I mean, and I'm sure you can love another child as much, but you know what I mean? Like you have this like perfect child and you're like, how can I ever not love someone more than you? So um, I'm still on the fence. Um, I've still got two embryos in storage. I'm still paying that storage fee. Um, I also actually still have 10 frozen eggs in storage that I haven't been able to like get rid of. Um, But I think once I'm, I I don't think I'll go there. I don't think now that I've had Callaway, um, if I was to try and have another child, I would use those two embryos and I think I would be done. So I'm still on the fence. I feel like I'm swinging slightly more towards no. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also sit up there at night time and cuddle him to sleep and think, Oh, you're getting so big and I could do this again. So hmm, what's this space? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And have the donors met Callaway yet, either virtually or in person? Yes, they have. So I actually um actually FaceTimed them the day I had him. They knew I was having him, and so they got to see him on FaceTime. Um and then um they have seen him three times. So they came over, they came here to visit when he was seven weeks old. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we um, just happened to be where they live. I was with my mom and uh, we had to go there for something. So we went and had brunch with them um, when he was, mm, I think, five months old, six mm-hmm. months old. Um, and then they actually just recently just, couple of weeks ago they were here in the school holidays um and I think that was a lot more fun for their kids because he now is sitting and um you know they're quite interested in his development and what he can do and um things like that so you know it's lovely to understand that he's their brother um I think I, I don't actually know like what they like you know what details they've told them um but we um the, the relationship is like cousins. So we, mm-hmm. you know, we say that they're cousins. Um, so, yeah, and it's really nice. We, um, you know, message, you know, a couple of times a week, send photos, um, you know, they, um, you know, she sends me photos of things that um, their kids are doing. Um, you know, I send photos of him and things he's learning to do. So it's a really nice connection there. Gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And how do you think becoming a mother has changed you as a woman? Um, Look, I think I've become, I don't know if I've become a lot more patient or like a more patient side has come out from me. Um, And I think I've very quite easily learnt to like 
let go of control. Mm. Like I've gone from, and I didn't really know I could do that, but I've gone from being like this person who has to be really organized and have all the ducks in a line and know everything, you know, and early days I tried to be like that. I'd be like, okay, so, you know, we have to be up at this time and sharing at this time so we can be out the door at this time. And then it just like all fell apart and you just learn really quickly that you kind of have to go with the flow. Um, And, you know, I think for the first like three months we were late for everything. Um, And I've just kind of, I've not become okay with being late, but I've just become okay with like kind of his needs coming first and I, you know, as much as I always wanted, wanted to be a mom, I never kind of really saw that side in myself Yeah, because I guess you just have your own needs to deal with, um, as a single person, um, or, and, or even like as someone in a couple, you just kind of like deal with yourself and, um, but he's helpless. Like if he needs to be fed right now, he needs to be fed right now. And, you know, in the morning when, um, if I'm eating my toast and he's screaming at me to feed him that wee bigs, my toast goes cold and I hate mm-hmm. cold toast, but my toast goes cold and I feed him. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I just feel like I'm a lot more of a relaxed person. Um, and not really, you know, necessarily like the high strung kind of person that I will. And I'm, you know, I still am, but just different ways. Just different. different. Yeah, exactly. And if anyone is about to consider going down the embryo donation route or being a recipient of an embryo, that kind of speak probably. So if anyone is considering whether um, being a recipient of an embryo would be the right thing for them, is there any advice you'd give them? Um, I think probably just like be open to the possibilities. Um, but I think in the current state of um, donations, I think you have to be really proactive. Um, when I was going, you know, when I'd sort of made the decision that I would go down um, the embryo donor um, path, I wasn't going to sit on a wait, a clinic waiting list. And I know that there's people that like go on multiple waiting lists at clinics, but clinic waiting lists can be two, three, four, five years long. Mm. Um, and some clinics you know, the, um, the, the donors actually get to pick the recipient. So you could sit there and and never be picked, I guess, in a sense. Um, so you, I mean, I feel like I got very lucky in that I, um, don't know anybody else who's had two lots of known donors. Um, and I guess I was like, sort of in the right place at the right time, but I put myself out there, you know, I joined those Facebook groups, um, you know, when my friend posted on her Facebook, I messaged her. Um, I didn't sort of like wait for someone to come to me. Um, and even the scenario wasn't even looking for you. You weren't what they're looking for, but you still put yourself yeah, out but there. Yeah, but I still put myself out there. And I think, um, you know, a lot of single women would go, well, no one wants like to donate to me. They want to donate to couples so a kid can have a mom and a dad. But we know that, you know, a family with just a mom is a great family. And I think, you know, a lot of people are actually open to that. Um, And, you know, in a way, like you're donating to somebody and you know that that person is going to be in that child's life. You know, you're not donating to a couple where the couple could separate or there could be, you know, so that is actually a positive. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think your embryo is going to be their whole world as well. Yes, 
Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, you know, that wasn't, um, I don't, I don't feel though that that was a hard sell. I don't feel that um, in those conversations that I had with my donor, I don't feel like I had to sell the fact that, um, you know, just because I was single, it didn't mean I was like, you know, any less than a couple. Mm. Um, I think once that connection was made, and I think that's what's important, the connection and those like common um, the common ground, whatever it is, you know, some people, some donors are looking for people that live a particular type of lifestyle. You know, if they're really healthy, fit people, they want healthy, fit people or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so I think making those connections is important, but yeah, really putting yourself out there and not just sitting, um, on a clinic, um, donor list, because the reality is that it may never be your turn. That sounds like some pretty good advice to end on. So thank you so much for sharing your story tonight, Cindy. I can't wait for everyone to hear about you and Kelly. I'm Alicia, and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review, or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.